Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to the 27th chapter of the book of Jeremiah, the book of the Waymaker. Jeremiah chapter 27, and this morning we're actually going to take two chapters, chapter 27 and chapter 28. In the second sermon of a series within this section of the book, we're simply entitled Beautiful Burden. Remember last week when I shared with you that burdens are often not enjoyable, and quite frankly, they almost never are, but they can be beautiful. We're focusing on the truth of God's Word about the burdens He asks us to bear. I don't know about you, but I don't like things around my neck. I'm so thankful that our church um, evolved past suit and ties every Sunday. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not against a suit and tie. Some of you wear suit and ties to our services. Others of you wear a coat and tie every day to work. You look good. I mean, you do, you look good. Invariably, if I ever wear a suit and tie out, one of our older senior adult ladies will walk up to me and say, you sure do look like a preacher today. That's her way of saying she'd like to see the suit and tie more often. I always remind her and many of you that when you see me in a suit and tie, you met Jesus because I'm doing your funeral. So you may not want me in a dark suit and a tie. Either I'm marrying you and you're broke because of that, or I'm burying you and you're rich in heaven. But one way or the other, that's when I normally wear a tie. And I'll tell you why that is. When the Lord, as the Bible says, wove us together in the womb of our mothers. When the Lord was making me, he was short on necks that day. I did not get one. I was elated around the age of 13 when my foot grew and I wear about an 11 and a half and my head is massive. You take the circumference of my head and the length of my foot, I'm thinking I'm going to be six foot eight. Boy, was I disappointed. The only reason I think the Lord made my feet long is because my head's so big I'd tip over if I wasn't. I'm like a weeble wobble. So because I have a no neck and slightly redneck, I don't like things around my neck. I don't like to wear ties. You may not have that problem, but nobody likes something grabbing you around the neck. Mom, you ever feel like your little ones are all over you all the time, pulling on you? Even if someone is horseplaying, when they wrap their arm around your neck, it can get serious really quickly. In fact, it's illegal in the game of football to tackle someone by grabbing their shoulder pads, and that tackle, that penalty is called a horse collar because it can literally collar the player and damage their neck. We know if you've ever been in a car wreck, one of the things we deal with from a collision is whiplash and pain in our Neck. Now, there are some beautiful things that we wear around our necks. Some of you may have a chain or a necklace that means a great deal to you, but I doubt any of you would enjoy wearing this around your neck. Now, I don't have to tell you what this is. This is an oxen's yoke. The crossbar is there in the center going from left to right, and then there is a yoke. Sometimes the yokes were leather straps. Other times they are bent or shaped wood like this. This replica represents what was used in antiquity and really used even in our uh, country up until the last century, and you know how it was used. Two oxen or two beasts of burden, perhaps two mules, two donkeys, 
would be placed in this, and the collar, that's what it's called, would go around their neck. And whenever you see two animals bound in an ox, in a, in a yoke, you know that they're not playing today. It's work time. When they're out in the pasture, they're allowed a certain level of freedom. But when those animals are brought in and they are yoked, and the yoke is put upon their neck, it's time to work. Whether it's dragging logs out of a forest that's being cleared, whether it's plowing or breaking ground in preparation for the spring and planting, it may be involved in construction, moving large stone and brick. But when two animals are bound in a yoke, they are not free. They are working to the point that we would call them beasts of burden. Well, believe it or not, of all the things you could put around your neck to preach a sermon, we come today to one of the most amazing symbols Jeremiah ever used. And God actually told Jeremiah to get one of these, similar to this, and put it around his neck and go preach. Because God wanted to symbolize his people bearing his yoke. So from Jeremiah chapter 27 and chapter 28, I want to preach to you a message simply called the yoke of God. Now remember our context. Jeremiah is called to preach to Israel, specifically Judah, the southern kingdom. And he's telling them that because of their rebellion and idolatry, we've covered that thoroughly over the last year in our church, because of their rebellion and their idolatry, God is going to bring forth discipline. He's not going to destroy them completely. He has no desire to annihilate his people. He, like any loving father, is going to discipline them specifically through the destruction of their precious home, their country, their nation, their city, and, of course, their beloved temple. And the hand of discipline of God is coming through a king named Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Now, under a king named Zedekiah, he's one of several kings that rule after the good king Josiah's death in Judah, under the king named Zedekiah, something began to occur. Nebuchadnezzar had to go back to Babylon to put down a rebellion against his own power. And the progression of destruction that Jeremiah had predicted had not yet come to pass. Now, put those two ingredients together. Imagine yourself in Jerusalem. Prophets like Jeremiah are saying, doom is coming, destruction is coming, repent, turn, God is going to judge us, we're going to be exiled, the nation's going to be destroyed, Nebuchadnezzar is marching, the Babylonians are ramping up their power, hearing that message, but then you catch wind, oh, maybe the Babylonians are struggling. Perhaps Nebuchadnezzar is not going to follow through. A group come and is exiled, but the city's not destroyed. And in this time, there began a group within Israel of rebellious people who said, we're going to push back. We're going to fight against Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe this is not going to happen. Maybe God has changed his mind. And that's when Jeremiah is called by God to put the yoke of God on and to first teach us about the yoke of God's will. Look what the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, remember that's that king I told you about, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus the Lord said to me, make yourself straps and a yoke bar and put them on your neck. Jeremiah didn't have the privilege of PowerPoint. 
He had to literally live out his sermon illustrations in front of his people. Verse 3, send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, the king of Sidon, to the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Now, again, why are all these kings in town? Because Zedekiah is plotting a little rebellion. He's like, listen, I'm going to get this king and this king and this king, and we're going to resist Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar may be the most powerful guy in the nation, but he's got his own political problems. We're going to push this back, and Jeremiah, your word is not going to come true, and we're going to push against the discipline of God. Remember that, grab it, underline it, and highlight it in your mind. Pushing against the discipline of God is what was about to take place. Now look what happens beginning in verse 4. Give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters. And verse 5 may be one of the most powerful verses about the sovereignty of God in all the Bible. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth. And I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him all the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. Translation, God reminds the people of Israel through Jeremiah's living yoke illustration. He and he alone is in control. He ordains the rise and the fall of the powers of the world. In other words, verse 5 specifically teaches us that we trust God because he first created and secondly, he controls all things. Now listen, this is important. Most bad teaching happens at the application level. The wrong application would be to assume that no matter where you are in the world today, when you read this, that we are exactly like Israel was here centuries before Jesus. That's not true. This passage doesn't mean that every single person who's ever been oppressed, it is because God is driving that oppression and it's not the result of wickedness or sinfulness. It also does not mean that every burden in our life should be run from. Or ran from. See, here's the temptation. The temptation goes something like this. People need hope. So when they're gracious, and I do think you're giving me grace today, you, you made a decision this morning. Hours before I had the privilege of looking at you, you made the decision to get up, to get your family up, to get yourself ready, to drive here, to park, to, to check your children in the children's wing, to come and to sit here. I'd never get over that. What an amazing blessing that you would bestow upon me the opportunity to share truth with you this morning. And so the temptation is ever-present. People are struggling. COVID cases are on the rise in certain pockets of our nation. Political unrest and division has never been more rampant. Nobody knows who to trust politically, socially, spiritually. Everybody wonders what will the future of our nation be. In addition to that, if you take all of the global struggles that we have away, each of you have individual struggles, unknowns in your own life. And so the temptation is just give people hope. Just tell them everything's going to be okay 
and God's going to work every single problem out immediately in their life. The problem is, is that that's not the story of the Scriptures. Now, don't get me wrong. There's no better gospel than the gospel of Jesus. There's no better place for hope than in Christ. There's no greater source of rich, abiding joy than having a personal relationship with the God of the universe. But that same loving creator teaches us over and over in his word. He calls us to bear the yoke of his burdens at times because it is in the difficult seasons of our lives where we are called to bear a yoke we may not enjoy and it is not restful and it is not pleasant that the loyalties of our heart are stripped away and we lean more and more and more on him. And let me tell you what happens when people begin to understand this, when the lights come on. All of a sudden, when we're called to suffer, when we're called to face difficult times, when we're called to be citizens in a nation in flux, when we're called to live through a pandemic, when we're called to walk along someone who's hurting, we begin to realize that it is in those moments God grows us the most, disciplines any sinfulness in our life, purges us of ourself, and brings us back to where we should always be, devoted solely to him and trusting that even though his ways are not our ways, he has been in control since before we were a thought in our parents' mind, and he will be in control millennia after we breathe our last breath of air on this earth. And because he is Alpha, Omega, beginning and end, first and last, and supremely above all mankind and the beasts of the field, we rest in knowing he may not solve our circumstance as we would like it to be solved, but he guides all things according to his will, and his will is for our good and restoration. And the human heart wants to run from this. What I naturally want when God places a yoke on my shoulders is to get it off. What I naturally want is relief, healing, miraculous intervention, prosperity, wealth, and health. And let me tell you something. Nobody can deliver those things like the Lord, and often he does shine his favor on us and blesses us beyond anything we could ever imagine. But we have a God who shows us over and over in his word that he chooses the yoke of his will over the selfish, sinful desires of our heart because unlike us, he knows us. He's the creator, and he's working all things for his good. So Jeremiah is told, put the yoke on and go tell him, listen, you don't need to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. You don't need to pretend that his judgment's not coming because his judgment is the judgment of God. What you need to do is to recognize that God is in control, and for this season of human history, he has ordained Nebuchadnezzar to rise to power. And Nebuchadnezzar, unlike God, has a beginning and an end, and one day he will come to an end. And if you were to flip your Bible forward, you will find that exactly happens according to the land of, 
under the leadership of the Persians, King Cyrus overcomes King Nebuchadnezzar's successor. And so God says Nebuchadnezzar has a beginning, Nebuchadnezzar has an end, and that is foreordained. But for this season, he's in power. And you need to recognize that I'm allowing him to conquer this city because you have rejected me, you have worshipped false gods, you have sacrificed your children, you have mistreated your neighbor, you have allowed immorality into your life. So don't shirk my discipline if you want my blessing. This is the yoke of God's will. But then we see the yoke of God's warning. Whenever God delivers a difficult message, rest assured the enemy's going to raise up people who come supposedly in the name of the Lord but offer the message we really want to hear. The rest of chapter 27 is three warnings, but it's really the same warning. It's just mentioned three times because it's to three different groups. First, Jeremiah warns the leaders of the other nations, which, by the way, proves what Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5 teaches us, which is that God was going to appoint Jeremiah a prophet to the nations, plural. So Jeremiah's not just speaking to the Jews. He's speaking to the surrounding nations. He's saying, listen, right now the Babylonians are the one that God has ordained to be in control, and you must submit to that because God is accomplishing his will. And so he says, first, go warn the nations. And we see that beginning really in verse 8. But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with sword and famine, with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. We also see it in verse 10. To Zedekiah, excuse me, verse 12. To Zedekiah, king of Judah, he spoke in like manner. Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon. Now look again in verse 16. Then I spoke to the priest and to all the people, saying, Thus, do not listen to the words of your prophets who are prophesying to you, saying, Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. Do not listen. Serve the king of Babylon and live. The Bible's full of admonitions to listen. You give all kinds of speeches to listen. School's about to start back. What are you going to say? First day of school. Have a good day, honey. Listen to your teacher. Listen to your coach. You want to bless your kid's coach? Tell your kid they're not awesome. They're not the greatest player. And their job is to do exactly what the coach says. That will bless them. By the way, if you raise your children that way, they'll make good employees. Good employees get promotions and make a good living, and they won't be back at your house. (laughs) Remind your children what the Word reminds us. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. You know what your grandmother said. The good Lord gave you two ears and one mouth. Listen twice as much as you talk. The Bible is full of admonitions to listen, to listen. Listen to the Word of God. Listen to your preacher. Listen to your wife. Listen to your husband. When your children are pouring their heart out, Listen to them. Some of you are gifted listeners. Some of us are not. And we have to work at being good listeners. But you know the same Bible also says there's a time when you should not listen. Don't listen to people who come in the name of the Lord, but do not speak of the words and the will of God. And do you know what most of the time those people say? Exactly what you want to hear. 
What would you want if you were living in this time? People had already been taken off to Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. In other words, there had already been one exile. The Babylonians were already in control, but they hadn't destroyed the city. And by the way, King Nebuchadnezzar, like many controlling kings in antiquity, didn't want to burn down what they conquered. (laughs) If you own something, you don't want to burn it down. You want to build it up because it is an investment. It's a blood investment of your soldiers to conquer the area. Once you conquer the area, what do you want? You want submission and you want taxation. So it was of no advantage for King Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Jerusalem. Yet Jeremiah predicted this is exactly what would happen. Why? Because Jeremiah was speaking from God. And God knew that the stiff-necked people, hard-headed and calloused of heart, would not surrender control of their lives to God. Therefore, they wouldn't surrender control of their life to the person God had ordained to be in charge. Therefore, they would resist unto rebellion, rebellion that would lead to a total destruction of the city, which happened in 586 B.C. We know that. And so during this time, before the city's destroyed, while Jeremiah is being honest that this is the yoke God has called these people to bear, false prophets arose, sorcerers arose, magicians arose. These men and women would come up and say, no, 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 it's, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. We're going to be just fine. You see Jeremiah over here, for years he's been saying the city's going to be destroyed. Is the city destroyed? No, it's not destroyed. See, he can't be trusted. We're going to be fine. Go live your life. Put your faith in your home. Put your faith in your country. Put your faith in your temple. God is on our side. Listen, worshiping and trusting God is pretty easy until... It means choosing him over your home, your country, or your temple. For you and I, that would be our church. You may have a check in your spirit. You may say, Pastor, what are you talking about? I want my home to honor the Lord. I believe God gave us this great nation and certainly got some weaknesses and struggles. It's not a nation of perfection, but God's blessed our nation. And, Pastor, I love my church. I I thought you loved our church. I do with all my heart. I with everything in me. I don't know where my life ends and your life begins. This is the only church I've ever known as a pastor. It's the only one I ever planned to know. I'm a one-and-done guy. That's how underwhelming my resume is. I'm here. But the minute that we draw confidence and security from the blessings and not the blesser, we begin to lose what God wants which is an intimate relationship with him and not just the freedom to enjoy his blessings. Look around on social media. What are people fighting hard to defend? Their home, their country, their way of life, their beliefs, their church, their normal, their race, their political views. Well, whatever it is, you watch. Both sides of the aisle, both ends of the spectrum. Watch what people are so passionately trying to defend. And what you find is that you see that under the surface of all this passionate defense is an indictment on a people whose first love is supposed to be the Lord. And and when I I love the Lord, thank you for my home. But if you want to burn it down, God, I trust you. When I love the Lord, thank you for my church. 
But if you ever called me to serve you somewhere else or called me to join another campus or called me to go and move or to help, I'll do it. Lord, thank you for this wonderful nation that you blessed so richly. But, but God, whatever your will is, whatever you want to do with this nation, that is what I will support and I will pray for. And so we have to be careful not to listen to false prophets who only want to say what we desire to hear. And we see this unfold all through this chapter over and over and over again. Look with me beginning in chapter 27, somewhere around verse 9. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, your sorcerers who are saying, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. Look at verse 14. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are saying, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. Look at verse 16. Thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of your prophets who were prophesying, saying, behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon. Jeremiah is saying, I know you want to hear that. I know you want to hear that God's going to fix everything today. But don't listen to people who only tell you what your own desires merit as trustworthy. And then again, you may say, what's the test for you and I? Don't we hear this a lot? Some of the most famous false teachers of our day are incredibly likable, enjoyably amiable, kind, optimistic. They smile, and they give us only good news. I have no better news than the gospel. I want to be a God filled with joy who's quick to laugh. I want to tell you that knowing the Lord is sweeter and greater than anything this world can supply. So I am of no shortage of good news. But if you buck the will of God, he's coming with a yoke. He loves you so much that he will not allow you to flounder in independence because that's where we end up in hell. Hell is full of people who went at it their own way. And yet, what did Jesus say? If you want to live, die. You want to be great, serve. You, you want justice, forgive your neighbor. You want to receive, give. You want to conquer, surrender. How do I test, pastor? I'll give you two quick questions. Whenever you hear somebody say, thus saith the Lord, ask this question, does what they say align with God's word? Not some reinterpretation of it, not some new age translation of it. Does it align with God's word? Either it does or it does not. We watch now as Christian denominations are falling apart over social justice issues over social sexual revelation issues. Really, that's just the surface when you peel it back. Decades ago, these same denominations began to chip away at the authority of God's word. What does God's word say? And second question, does it align with God's will? And by the way, let me tell you, while God loves to bless you, his greatest blessings for you are waiting. It's called heaven. It's called heaven. So, so, so if God's word has declared it to be true, then what is God's will? Well, if his word is his revelation, his will is salvation. Any person who says they come in the name of the Lord and doesn't call people to be saved by Jesus is a false teacher. Do not listen to them. And if you have to listen to more 
than a handful of sermons, talks, podcasts, or vlogs without them speaking about Jesus and the blood and Calvary and sin and repentance and faith and the church and forgiveness and healing and wholeness and heaven and eternity, things that I don't know permeate the Scripture, delete the subscription, and move on to someone who teaches and talks from the Scriptures about the will of God, which is to pursue mankind in his or her rebellion and to bring us as members of his family into a kingdom of grace covered by his blood, filled with his spirit, with a longing to understand on this side of heaven, he may call us to a yoke, but the yoke or the burden is always for his glory. And for those of you who are suffering today, Don't for one second think you can take this passage and apply it wholesale to your situation, meaning that if you're sick in your body or if your marriage is struggling, that somehow God is punishing you. That's a misapplication of the text. But I'll tell you another misapplication of the text. Don't for one second think God's going to waste your pain, that God is not going to use your situation, that God is not calling you to walk with purpose through circumstances you would change if you could but God has revealed at this point he's not changing he has not healed he has not restored he's not moving in a way that you and I would concern ourselves to describe as miraculous in those moments remember he does some of his greatest work when his children understand that he is a God who blesses through the yoke, which is thirdly the yoke of God's Word. So you know what happens, don't you? Anybody ever grew up watching old westerns? So in any old western, there's going to be a gunfight. and it, It's never a drive-by or a ride-by. It's two cowboys, usually the good cowboy and the evil cowboy, the outlaw and the man with a bag. That's probably one of the reasons we like Westerns, because there's a definitive good and bad. We like that in our drama. We like, we like closed uh, stories that have a good guy to root for, a good girl to root for, and a bad guy or a bad girl to root for. And they end up on some dusty street, and all the people pull the children into the schoolhouses, the saloon doors slam shut, and then they, they end up walking out right at the same point. It's like coordinated. It's almost like an old Western dance-off. Woke her up. And so they look down the street at one another and invariably, that's free, by the way. You put that on Twitter. Clint Eastwood had the best eyes. He would lift up the brim of his hat and his cold, still blue eyes would cut right through you. And then there would be a gunfight. Who was the quickest draw? The best way I can describe chapter 28 is a prophetic gunfight. Hananiah, who's an unknown prophet, we don't know. There's about 14 or 15 Hananiahs mentioned in the Old Testament. This guy appears here and only here. We don't know anything about him. Hananiah is one of those false prophets who've been saying, it's really not that bad. God's going to do a work. We're going to all be restored right now. Don't change your wicked ways. He's for you. And so Hananiah gets fed up with Jeremiah's yoke. And believe it or not, he steps up 
and jerks the yoke off Jeremiah's neck and slams it down. It's almost like a preschool tantrum. He slams the yoke down and says, no, it's only going to last two years. Don't believe me? Look at chapter 28 very quickly. In the same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, the fifth month, the fourth year, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet of Gibeon, spoke in the house of the Lord in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Notice Hananiah knows the words. He knows the verbiage. The God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. So Jeremiah's saying, the yoke's on us. Hananiah's saying, no, I have broken the yoke. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried it by. I can just hear the name it, claim it crowd preaching this message. Today's your day. God's going to restore you today. Speak that promotion into existence, and it's going to happen. The boss is walking into your office tomorrow with cash, and if it doesn't, it's a lack of your faith. Speak that parking place close to the mall's entrance into existence, and it will take place. Speak healing over your grandmother's cancer, and by the name of Jesus, it will be removed. That garbage is peddled so much, and you know what happens with that? People do what the speaker says because he or she is influential, they're dynamic, they're charismatic, and then grandmother doesn't receive healing. Not only does the promotion not come, the company does layoffs, and it causes people to be bankrupt in their faith because they said, I ran around in the name of Jesus. I spoke in the name of Jesus. I bought a little oil from your ministry in the name of Jesus. I purchased the prayer handkerchief in the name of Jesus. I sowed a seed for your new plane in the name of Jesus, and none of this prosperity happened to me. This is not new. Hananiah is saying the same thing. Jeremiah's wrong. The yoke will be broken in two years, and we're all going to be fine. Now, I love Jeremiah's response. This is so good. Instead of getting on social media and bashing Hananiah's ministry, instead of taking the yoke and hitting Hananiah over the head, you know what Jeremiah said? Jeremiah says, Hananiah, I listened to your sermon, man. I hope you're right. Like, I'm not stuck on suffering. I'd love for what you said to be true. Now, it's not true, but I'd love for what you said to be true. I'm not preoccupied with preaching messages that are hard for people to hear. I want to see people prosper. I want to see people flourish. I want to see people receive healing. But I'm just telling you what you said is not true, and I'm summarizing, if I'm right and you're wrong, you're a false prophet, and if you're a false prophet, God is going to deal with you. Well, that was just about enough. Look what happened beginning in verse 12. Sometime after the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke bars from off the neck of Jeremiah, the prophet, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So now God said, hey, Jeremiah, obviously Hananiah ain't tapped in. He's not listening, so you go tell him these words. Go tell him. Go tell Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, you have broken the wooden bars, but you have made for their place iron bars. Look up at me. When you don't give people the whole truth, you imprison them. You imprison them. The whole truth is that God loves you. He loves the most filthy sinner listening to me preach right now. But he loves you so much that he will not ignore your sin. And until you repent, he will not lift the yoke. He is not going to fail the discipline. He loves you. And if I didn't tell you that, if we did touchdown cheerleader for Jesus pep rally every Sunday at Church at the Mill, you would feel better for a season. Some of you would never be saved. 
Others of you would be immature in your faith for many, many years because all I am is a motivational speaker without dealing with the holiness of God. Jeremiah said, God said, you broke those wooden yoke, but you've created iron ones. He goes on to tell Hananiah, and Hananiah, by the way, God's going to issue his discipline on you. You're going to lose your life. Look at the last verse of 28. In that same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. Doesn't mean that God can or will choose to discipline to death every false prophet. But it does mean when you speak in the name of the Lord, whether you're posting something online, whether you're having a conversation with someone, you make sure that if you're going to say, thus saith the Lord, you know what the Lord saith. And you speak honestly and you speak kindly because it leads to the final yoke. It's not in this text. He got the yoke of God's word, the yoke of God's will, the yoke of God's warning. But let me tell you about the yoke of God's one. You see, Jesus knew about Jeremiah. He understood the picture of the yoke. And when he showed up in the first century, people were burdened with religion. All they had was rules and rituals and no one felt hope or peace. And you know what Jesus said in the book of Matthew chapter 11? He looked out at the crowds of the nobodies, not the spiritual leaders, not the high priest, just the nobodies who were seeking him, who were finding him, who were trusting him. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. That's how he referred to the nobodies like you and me. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal. Now listen to what Jesus said. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. You see, Jesus has a yoke. And like every other yoke, it's got two holes in it. He's in it. He wants you to join with him. But unlike you and I being yoked together, And unlike two beasts of burden being yoked together, when you're in the yoke with Jesus, he does the pulling. He provides the supernatural power. He's the one that had the yoke before you were born and will always have the burden of creation on the plate of his creative and ruling power. And he says to you and me, I got two holes. I'll fill one, you fill the other. Come join me and take upon my yoke. Why would I want to trade a yoke of religion and a yoke of worldliness for the yoke of Jesus? I'll tell you why. Look what he says. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's only one way for a yoke to be easy, and that is if one animal pulls a lot further, a lot stronger, and a lot more than the other one. Salvation is not just God breaking you from the chains and the yoke of sin. It's God saying, come under me, submit to me, join with me, and you will find that in death you'll live. 
In serving, you'll be great. In forgiveness, you'll make peace with justice. In surrender and submission, you will conquer. I was thinking about this this week. You know, I opened up with a few jokes about the neck. There is one thing I think would be cool for somebody to put on my neck. A gold medal. You know, they stand and they they put that gold medal and now some of them bite it. I hope they wipe that thing down over there before they bite it, but they bite the gold medal. It's kind of cool to have a gold medal. There's a young lady who set the new world record in the 400-meter hurdle for female, Sydney McLaughlin. Sydney loves Jesus with all of her heart. And I saw that image of her being awarded that gold medal. And then I read this quote by this young woman. See if you don't hear a yoke in it. I no longer run for self-recognition, but to reflect his perfect will that is already set in stone. She's got a good preacher. Somebody's been giving her good theology. She knows that her God has already determined the winners of the race before the gun fires. So it frees her up. She wrote after she set the world record in June, I don't deserve anything. How refreshing is that? From a world of celebrities and athletes that expect everyone to cater to them, this beautiful, gifted, young athlete says, I don't deserve anything. But by grace through faith, Jesus has given me everything. Records come and go. Babylonians come and go. Persians come and go. Pandemics come and go. The glory of God is eternal. Thank you, Father. One day, you'll get to lay your yoke down. And you'll be handed the crown of righteousness. And then you and I will get to lay that at the feet of Jesus. And until then, while the world may not want to dawn many gold medals on us for standing for his word, and while our burdens are yokes that he calls us to bear, we bear them knowing he bore a yoke we could not wear. You see, they put wood across my Savior's back. It was not shaped like a yoke, but a cross. He did not plow the ground with an oxen, but his own feet. There was no water to irrigate the soil. It was his blood. And because of his cross, there is no yoke that I can't bear with him in the other hole.